According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. in the Galilean ministry, but we just had a couple of items that we really needed to tie together, some loose ends that we didn't really have the opportunity to wrap up last week. Could have taken an extra 15 minutes, could have taken an extra 30 minutes, could have taken a whole hour to wrap up these these final items from Luke chapter 5. And I don't know how long it'll take. We might just tie it together this morning. It won't take but five minutes, ten minutes. And we can jump on ahead to John chapter 5. But in any event, this is something I didn't want to cram into the end of, uh, of the session a week ago and feel like we were somehow rushed. All right, Luke chapter 5, verses uh, 36 through 39. And uh, I will probably back up to 33 through 39 as we tackle it here today. Before we do any of that, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that distractions are set aside, that we have objectivity to the Word of God, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do humble ourselves before you this morning, and we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, that you were well pleased to reveal yourself, to uh, make your, your will known to us in written form, and I thank you that we have the privilege and blessing to study the living and abiding Word of God. We pray that we might be uh, rightly dividing the Word of truth, studying to show ourselves approved as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. So, Father, we call upon you now to once again demonstrate your faithfulness uh, through the Holy Spirit, guiding us, teaching us in your word. And we ask, Father, uh, for the material today, if there's anything that's convicting, that we would respond to that conviction. If there's anything that's uh, rebuking, that we would respond to that rebuke. And, Father, we truly want to respond on the basis of faith and not simply react in, uh, in a carnal fashion. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, always uh, appreciate the distinction between responding and reacting. And uh, that's a huge difference on many different levels. And some folks, uh, you know, take a particular message and think, you know, the pastor's picking on me or something like that. No, and that's where we have the real benefit of teaching line upon line, precept upon precept. You know, we're following along a harmony of the Gospels format. And if we get to this particular item, that's where we are. And that's not because the pastor picked it out to pick on you or anything else. It's because that's where we are. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians, that's where we are. We're in chapter 9. We're dealing with money issues. But people uh, know right off the bat we're not begging for money or, or trying to twist some guilt or let people know that uh, you know, you're not given enough, that kind of thing. We're in chapter 9 because we finished chapter 8. And when we wrap up here, we're going to go to chapter 10 and so forth. And so we're not harping on uh, pet peeves or, or particular passages that uh, we think people need to, need to square away. When we do teach it, though, if there is a matter that people are a little uncomfortable with, well, then the Spirit of God has to take control of that. And the Spirit of God has to uh, convict where necessary and make those uh, necessary attitude adjustments. All right. Here in Luke 5, uh, something we've got to consider now is the aspect of legalism. The, the legalistic Pharisees that were then starting to spread into the, uh, their influence into the disciples of John. 
And in particular, the issue was fasting. But it doesn't have to be fasting. It could be anything. It could be anything that's legitimately enjoyed that then a legalistic approach takes it and says, no, wait, you can't do that. All right. So it's really a, a, a study that's much wider than fasting. It could encompass any number of things where the, the scriptures give us freedom, but man-made religions come along and say, no, you can't do that, or we're going to tell you how to do it, or we'll control how you do it, or where, or when, and so forth. So fasting is the direct illustration, but really the picture is much wider than that. Now, Matthew gets saved, and Matthew gets called to ministry, and Matthew's excited, and Matthew's using this opportunity to bear witness to his fellow tax collectors. And is giving a big reception for him in the house. And that's such such a key because we're called to rejoice. We're called to celebrate. This should be a happy occasion. It is a reception. It is one of great celebration. And the only ones that really aren't celebrating are the legalists here in the crowd, the Pharisees, the scribes. And they start grumbling in verse 30. And that's going to start spreading, which is why... Uh, why we have to to kill it when we get the chance? Why when we can when we can uh, nip it in the bud, so to speak? We can just get it before it spreads, because we we recognize this now in verse thirty three. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And the Luke narrative doesn't necessarily indicate that those uh, disciples of John the Baptist are right here on hand, but the Matthew or the Mark uh, parallel, I think, makes it very clear that they were there also. And so that influence was starting to spread. And now they're not the only ones grumbling. The grumbling is now starting to grow. And you really have to stop grumbling as quick as you can because it does, it does uh, expand. Now, Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? And it's interesting because they didn't really have a question. They just made a comment, kind of an accusatory comment when they say, well, John's disciples fast and the Pharisees disciples fast, uh, but your disciples don't fast. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your guys? How come they don't fast? And it's, it's a way to be accusatory and inflammatory without really asking the question okay and so when the lord replies with a question of his own it's it's uh, it's, it's confrontational sure but it's also instructive it's also gracious it's a way to explain biblically with doctrinal content why it is that they're not fasting and put it back into their court say answer me this now why uh how are you going to try to make a bridegroom or a friend of a bridegroom uh sorrow and fast on the occasion of the uh, of the wedding, you just can't do it, and so the 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 whole implication of appropriateness, um, I think, becomes becomes crystal clear. When it's appropriate to fast, fast. When it's appropriate to feast, feast. And uh, those are the principles that we've developed up through this point. Now, as far as the outline goes, we've done a lot of study on this. Um, we see who the questioners were. We see that legalistic disapproval. Isn't it always interesting that legalism always tends to disapprove, tends to tell you where you don't measure up, what you're doing wrong, and so forth, so on and so forth? It's it's really parallel to what perasmus is, because perasmus, temptation, is always for your disapproval, always for your downfall. It's never for your uplifting. It's never for your approval. When God tests, that's for approval. That's for blessing. That's for lifting you up and encouraging you to, to excel still more. But temptation and, and, and the, the devil's snares are always for your disapproval, always for your downfall. And 
interestingly enough, that's the nature of legalism. It always condemns. It always says, no, you don't measure up. You're not doing this right. You're not doing what we're doing, so something's wrong with you. Under point three, fasting and feasting don't mix. And boy, if we can get a handle on that. Are there times to fast? Of course. Um, in, the, in the dispensation of the church, are there times to fast? Absolutely there are times to fast. Because we live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. We presently struggle against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. And of course there are going to be times that we're going to want to fast. There are going to be times that we uh, individually or in marriages or families or even as a local church, we're going to have a, an, a, an event or an occasion where... We need to get serious about our prayer life. We need to focus on the spiritual battle to the exclusion of everything else. Food, drink, marital activities, everything. Because this becomes the, the number one priority. But, is that the universal rule? No. Are there times for feasting? Absolutely there are times for feasting. In uh, the Old Testament, they had their various feasts. They had a calendar to follow on the feasts. Uh, in the New Testament, we don't have a calendar to follow but we certainly have feasting opportunities. In fact, we should have more feasting opportunities than any previous stewardship or dispensation. We ought to be able to celebrate together and slay the fatted calf again and again and again and again, finding opportunities to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Talked about the flawed logic in that. Fasting was featured in the Old Testament. We spent some time on that. Now, Point five, fasting was inappropriate for the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. During the period of his ministry, when the Lord was ministering with his disciples, that was not a time for fasting. That was a time for rejoicing, a time for feasting. They've been waiting for 2,000 years since the call of Abraham. God said, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He promised him land, seed, and blessing, and here's the seed. Here is the not only seed of the woman, but the seed of Abraham. Here's the seed of David. And he's right here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're ready to bring in the kingdom. Of course, this is a time for celebration. As uh, the Lord points out, you just cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Uh, it'd be like trying to overcome omnipotence, trying to overcome the will of God, trying to do something in human effort that's totally at odds with what God's doing with his divine power, trying to turn them into mourners when they're uh, ones that should be feasting. And so the, uh, the, there's only one answer to this where it says you cannot, can you, is a very skeptical question. It's, it's the structure of the Greek syntax in here that demands the negative answer. The only way to answer this is no. Okay? And you know how to phrase a question, don't you? Wives know how to phrase a question. Husbands know how to phrase a question. Where you can phrase it in just a particular way, and the only safe answer your spouse has is no. Right? Like when you look at them with that glare in your eye and that you're not watching another ball game tonight, are you? Oh, um, no, wasn't planning on it. Back to, how, is there a ball game tonight? I didn't even know that. No, I had no idea. No, I wouldn't. Of course not. Of course not. Okay. Husbands can do the same thing. And they can phrase a question in such a way with a particular look, with a particular tone of voice. And the wife realizes, uh, no, dear, 
nope. It's the, really the only safe answer. Okay. There is a Greek construction on that, and uh, the beginning students will gather that in time as we proceed through first year on into second year Greek, actually. But the, uh, the uh, construction of this passage demands the negative answer. Uh, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? And I, I like the way the New American Standard does that because that's the way that this publisher communicates that uh, syntactical construction because it... it expects the negative answer. Really, the only acceptable answer is the negative answer, is that, well, no, we can't. That's, that'd be impossible. That'd be crazy. Now, the uh, fasting will once again become appropriate for difficult times of sadness. And I was asked last week, does that include the church age? Okay. Well, it says here, uh, the day is coming, or days, plural, will come. So it's not just one occasion. Days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. So after the crucifixion, of course, there's a time of sadness there. And prior to the resurrection, they're fasting, they're praying, they're, they're, uh, those circumstances are there. Uh, during the tribulation, of course, difficult times are in store for Israel. It is called the time of Jacob's trouble. <laughs> for Israel to try to feast during the tribulation would be as ludicrous as the disciples trying to fast during the age of incarnation. Okay, it'd be totally out of line and, and, and wrong. The church age is an interesting uh, stewardship because our Savior is gone and yet he's here because he's within each one of us. We were not in his physical presence, but we are spiritually in his presence and he is in us and we in him. We uh, function in the at, at the right hand in the uh, highest of heavens. So. Uh, it's it's an interesting stewardship in which we live. Somebody asked me last week, so is fasting appropriate for the church age? Yes and no. There are occasions, certainly, but there are also occasions for fasting, and we want to be clear on that. But for difficult times of sadness, you know, 1 Corinthians 7.26, the church age is called the present distress. And we need to realize that, that there will be seasons in our stewardship where, due to the difficult times, fasting is very appropriate. And, and it can really bring a, a flock together if we were united in one purpose, of one mind, and so forth. Some of this is a bit uh, maybe alien because of our prosperity culture, because of the society in which we live. But I tell you, I was, uh, I was in Ukraine when they got, first got that word from Ulan in, uh, in Kyrgyzstan. And... You know, Ulan had been a student in that school, and the, the second-year students remembered him. The first-year students didn't, but the second-year students remembered him. And we get this word about Ulan being arrested and his family and his kids and, and being beaten and the uh, things that aren't even speakable in, in, a, in a church service, that, that the torture that he went through. Uh, you know, we get that kind of news and immediately go to prayer, and, and th- there's a sense of urgency there in that setting in that context in a in a world where these freedoms we take for granted aren't granted as a matter of course and uh, and they become a serious issue and so the the bible college there in kiev got very serious about praying you know that day all that day all that night throughout the week it was a very interesting occasion all right we're left off, and what I really want to spend this session on before moving on to episode 12 is this parable. The parable in verses 36 through 39. The Lord then utilized the parable method of instruction to communicate truth. And the parable method 
is interesting because it's designed to communicate and yet not communicate. It communicates to those who have ears to hear. It communicates volumes. But to those that are, um, in, in this context, the legalist, or in other contexts, uh, they may be redeemed, but they're not hungry for teaching. Okay, We want to realize that this is a, a, a layer beyond in terms of, and, and here I'll start drawing pictures. Um, hey, you get to use my new device. Uh, layers beyond the um, standard ability to perceive truth. All right. We've got this idea that says the, uh, the distinction in, in learning the word of God is the cross. Is that too high? Ah. I'm going to put a little bar across there so I can know how high to put it. Right there. Okay. I'm going to put a piece of tape down so I'll know. Um, but folks over here on this side of the cross have no ability to learn the Word of God. None at all. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to them for they are spiritually uh, perceived. And, and only the spiritual man can uh, discern the things of God. The natural man cannot. So the spiritual man, that is the one over here that is spiritually alive, and if you are in Christ, you can learn the Word of God because you have a living human spirit. All right? And we taught this with great length at... Uh, the point where we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the point where we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, there's another barrier to learning the Word of God. And you might be in Christ, but you may not be in fellowship. And that's where we transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3. When Paul told the Corinthians, he says, you know what? You're carnal. And I can't speak to you as a spiritual man because of the carnality problem. So salvation is one level where you have to pass that point to understand the Word of God. But spirituality is then the second stage where you have to be past that to understand the Word of God. Okay? And that's where this parable comes in because having, simply having an ear to hear, you still have to choose to hear. Okay? And even if you're regenerate, if you are carnal, forget about it. And a parable can go forth and it can speak volumes, but only to believers that are spiritual. Fill with the spirit, uh, church age, filled with the spirit. Okay, and we're dealing with the Old Testament here, where they weren't filled with the spirit, but they could still learn the word of God. Okay, and that's kind of what I'm trying to illustrate this morning. Now, there is even beyond that. There is even a third layer where the word of God can be taught, and that's where we're occupied with the Father. And we recently learned that in First Corinthians uh, chapter seven, where we have that power increased and having. Increased power, we have an ability to understand length and width and height and depth and uh, to know the love of Christ that surpasseth knowledge. We go into a, uh, a hyper learning mode at that point. So three levels where we can perceive the word of God. All right. And we need to be saved. We need to be filled with the spirit. And then in that third level, uh, get that material about length, width, the height and depth that we taught back in first Corinthians. You'll understand you need to have that power ratcheted up. You need to have the uh, power of the Holy Spirit multiplied to, uh, to learn that uh, love of Christ that surpasseth knowledge. All right. 
So what we're dealing with with parables then in the sense that some of these folks may actually be regenerate. All right. Some of these Pharisees may be regenerate. I know that bothers a lot of people. Okay, but think about it. If they grew up anticipating the coming Christ, if they placed their faith in the coming Christ, they're saved. We're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're looking back 2,000 years in, in the finished, completed work on the cross, and we have that perspective of time. But these Pharisees, these Jews that were looking forward, they were saved looking forward. They placed their faith that there is a Messiah coming, and they're saved. All right? And can you lose your salvation? No. Not at all. You cannot lose your salvation. So they're saved. They're looking forward to the coming Christ. They're saved, but then they go to school. <laughs> they go to college. They get messed up. Say, that would never happen. A believer would never get messed up going to college. Oh, please. Okay. And they get wrapped up into a very legalistic, ritualistic system. Phariseeism of their day. All right. Now, they're, they're consumed by this religion. They're consumed by this legalism. Right? So the point when the Messiah actually is standing in front of them, they hate him. Because he's not what they uh, want him to be. He's not, he's not one of them. He didn't go to their school. He's not following in their uh, viewpoints as far as what makes Sabbath observance. What makes, and, and we're going to get into John chapter 6, uh, or John chapter 5, the Lord actually has the audacity to heal a guy on the Sabbath. Okay? Bad news as far as the Pharisees were concerned. All right? What I'm trying to get across here is the idea that these guys may actually be regenerate. We're going to see them in heaven because, uh, of course, they lived 2,000 years ago, and they're long dead, and they're with the Lord. Because they got saved anticipating His coming. You can't lose that. But they do not have ears to hear. And that's the nature of parable teaching. It's going to be given to these disciples and they will learn. But they're going to hear these words and they're not going to understand the spiritual impact of them. All right. Now, here's the parable. He was telling them a parable. Now, it has several different parts, whether it's cloth, whether it's wine. OK, it's, it's still a parable. It's the same parable. It's a parable. It's just it has different aspects of it similar to luke 15 there's a parable in luke 15 and it features a lost coin it features a lost sheep and it features a lost son that little brother okay but it's a parable here we have a parable no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment otherwise he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old okay now think about it you got a brand new garment you just got it at Walmart, or if you don't shop at Walmart, wherever you shop. All right, you just bought it at the shop that you patronize, and you bring it home, okay? But when you put it, if you ought to put it in your closet, there's that other shirt sitting in there, and you just really, really can't bring yourself to throw that other shirt away. It's old. It's got a hole in it. You can't really be seen in public because you've got these standards to uphold, Right? But you love that shirt. So you decide, you know what? I'll tear off a piece of this new shirt 
sew it to this other shirt, this old one, because I just can't let myself let that shirt go. I can't bear to get rid of it. So now what have I done? I just ruined a perfectly good shirt. I didn't have the capacity to enjoy my new shirt because I was so wrapped up in that old shirt with a hole in it. And so not content to scrap it and embrace this brand new shirt where I could put it on and there it is, there's no holes in it. It only has a hole in it because I put a hole in it when I took that part out to patch this other shirt. This was a perfectly good shirt, brand new. In fact, much greater than the previous shirt. But what did I do? I ruined it. I deliberately ruined what was brand new and perfect so that I could cling to what was old and needing to be tossed. It needed to be tossed. See, I had, when I was a toddler, I had a blanket. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you this story because we all had blankets when we were toddlers. But some of us may have kept that blanket longer than others. All right. And this is where I won't tell you exactly how old I was, because that might be embarrassing. All right. But there comes a point, <laughs> and it's got to go. See? And the mother wonders, you know, how long is that blanket going to last? You know, is this something that they're going to take with them to their marriage? Or what, you know, how long does that does it last through college or high school? or when does it, Well, finally, see, the best part of it was, and I wonder sometimes if um, my mother maybe did some extra harsh cycles in the washing machine or whatever, because eventually the blanket dissolved. That's finally what happened to it. It had been washed so many times that it finally just basically disintegrated. The, the material could no longer handle it. And, and maybe, maybe there was a little cleverness on my mom's part to use a harsh spin cycle or some kind of detergent or something that would accelerate the disintegration of that blanket. Well, there comes a time when, you know what, that thing's just got to go because it's old. It's fallen apart. It's got holes in it. It's no longer serviceable. You know what? At one time, it was a blessing. At one time, it had a purpose. At one time, it could be a glory. It was a beautiful thing, but it's not a beautiful thing anymore. Been long. It's only beautiful in your memories and in your clinging to it and in your unwillingness to let it go. Yes, really, you're the only one that even thinks it's beautiful anymore. Everybody else looks at it and says, what about this new one? Okay, wear this new shirt. That old shirt is just, it's got to go. So here's what happens when, when you tear a piece of cloth from a new garment. What have you done? You just wrecked the new garment. Why did you do that? Because you were unwilling to let go of the old one. So you would ruin the new one. And you put it on the old garment. So that does that fix the old garment? No. Because as soon as you wash it, first of all, it's going to tear. It's, uh, it's not shrunk like the old ratty thing is. And so the first washing, then it starts to shrink and it tears away and it pulls away. And so what you've done is you've torn both. You've torn both. Now, same thing with the wineskins. The same parable, just different imagery. Okay? Maybe you don't relate to the, uh, to the uh, clothing imagery. You're not uh, into 
you're not a seamstress, or you're not into textiles or any such thing, but you uh, you can relate to the wine, okay? So if if that one works better for you to fix this in your mind, then use that one, okay? It's like when we get into Luke 15. Maybe the lost sheep didn't do it for you. Maybe the lost coin didn't do it to you. You couldn't quite rela- relate to any of that. But the lost son hit you like a load of bricks, all right? So remember that part. It's all the same parable. Now, putting new wine into old wineskins you're going to ruin both. You're going to ruin the wine because it's going to pour out all over the ground and you're going to wreck the wine skin because it's going to burst. Uh, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. See, the, the wine is going to expand. It's new wine. And so as it ferments, as it uh, ages, it's going to expand and that old wine skin has already been as stretched as it's going to get. Okay? It's been stretched already with the wine that had before. See? And so now it's already as stretched as it's going to get. It's not going to expand even more to accommodate this new wine. That's why you put new wine into new wine skins. And so uh, you have the stretchability on your leather there and, and uh, while the wine ferments. But you, you're only going to do that the once. You can't take an old wine skin and then expect it to stretch even more when the new wine hits it. It's going to burst. New wine must be put into fresh wine skins. Verse 38. So the subpoints on this, it's one parable with two illustrative forms. One parable is given with two illustrative forms. And there's really no limit. You can, like with Luke 15, you can have three illustrative forms. You could conceivably have a dozen illustrative forms. It, you know, if, if your audience is really that thick and you need a, a dozen different ways to explain it so people can catch on to one of the 12 different things, well, okay, do that. You know, the pastor struggles, and if the if the sports illustration doesn't work, he might try a car illustration, or he tries a uh, a pregnancy illustration, or whatever. You know, you, you struggle to find something that communicates, and people go, oh, that's what you're talking about. It's the same message. It's the same parable. New and old don't mix. Both are ruined. New and old don't mix. Both are ruined. That's what we have to get our arms around here this morning. If we don't walk out of here understanding this, then we have failed. Because we're not really talking about clothing. And we're not really talking about wine. What is Jesus Christ trying to say when he says new and old don't mix? What's he really telling these Pharisees? Well, their aspect was the, um, the, uh, the concept of fasting. Their bugaboo was the law. Their bugaboo was what was old. Okay? And really what was being fulfilled in Christ, and by the time we get to the book of Hebrews, it says growing obsolete, ready to disappear, because something even greater than Mosaic law is about to be uh, bestowed upon the Jewish people, that being the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. But here's something new, here's something different. And instead of embracing it and celebrating it, they're rejecting it so they can cling to what's old. They want to keep their control. They want to keep their religion, uh, their legalistic religion. They want to keep rabbinic Judaism is what they want to keep. Okay? Or the Pharisaic religion that would in the next century and a half become rabbin- the rabbinic Judaism we know today. All right? And the Lord says you can't do that. In fact, you end up wrecking both. What you end up with, what the new is also ruined, as well as the old. Okay. Now, 
the the distinctions I think are beyond and I'll draw more pictures. The distinctions are beyond simply the um, the uh, incarnation, but that's that's the immediate application of it. I think that we also have to recognize that we have the church coming in as well. But in in the in a timetable here, um, obviously in in Israel's stewardship. They started with promise. Remember? The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So starting with Abraham, they had this age of promise. And then through Moses. Now with Moses, we now have law. Now think about it. If the the, the natural human tendency to long for days gone by and to cling to what's old and to reject what's coming up, okay, uh, might keep a, uh, a Jewish person here desirous to stay in the age of promise and not go forward back into the age of law. I think there's an awful lot of people today trying to function like they're living in the age of promise, in the patriarchal age, okay? Uh, or... Let's go back to the age of innocence, why don't we? Before there even was a sin. Let's go back to Adam and Eve, why not? Okay, can't do that. The, the aspect of God's unfolding plan and His increasing responsibility in the, in the uh, unfolding stewardship is vital. But now, with Jesus Christ, did He come to abolish the law? No, He came to fulfill the law. And for this age of what we call the age of the Incarnation, Something greater than the law was there. Something greater than the Sabbath was there. The Lord of the Sabbath was there. He's going to call himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He didn't recognize their Sabbath. Because what had the Pharisees done with it? They'd turned it into something that it wasn't originally as it was given. And he would know because he's the one that gave it to him. <laughs> right? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. They're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. He says, wait a minute. This is my Sabbath. It'd be like going into somebody's house and telling them they're trespassing in their own house. And you say, wait a minute. I'm not trespassing. This is my house. You get out of here. Right? But here they are, and they think that they're the managers. They're the stewards. Okay? And that's the distinction. They say, well, we're the stewards. We're in charge. We'll tell you what the Sabbath is. We'll tell you what to do. We'll tell you all this other stuff. And the king says, wait a minute. You might be, you, you are the stewards, but you're being faithless as stewards. And this is my house. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. This age is very different than the age of law. Even though he was born under the law, the law is still in effect. The, the unique circumstances of having the Lord of the Sabbath there is undeniable. Just like it's different from promise. It's going to be different from, there's, a, there's an age coming up called tribulation. Still going to be Israel's stewardship, but it's going to be an age of tribulation. It's going to have unique circumstances that are unlike the age of promise, the age of the law, or the age of the incarnation. Okay. Now, this is where the uh, the link between old and new was in play, because they wanted to insist that the Lord's disciples follow this this uh, pattern of fasting. And Jesus says, no, that's old. That's, that's for the age of law. That's for 
that and it was never mandatory anyway that's not for the age of the incarnation something new is here the christ is here and these disciples are disciples of the christ and they have no uh function in fasting at all not while the bridegroom is here and so the new versus old the the immediate application was was right there was that link and they were so busy clinging to the law that they could never embrace the incarnation they could never embrace the personal presence of their Christ. Even though the law was supposed to point the way to Christ. Now, there is another link. And this is where we, we draw, after the cross, we draw, a lot of times in parentheses, the church. And there's another great big new versus old contrast. A huge new versus old contrast. And it's described in the book of Acts. And all the questions of, you know, these Gentiles are getting saved. Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to obey Moses? Do they need to follow the law? And what do they determine in Acts chapter 15? What was the unanimous decision of Peter and Paul and, and James? And they had this conference and they said, no, the church isn't under the law. There's something new. And if you're trying to blend old and new, you're in trouble. Because you're ripping the garment up and you're trying to patch something that, that doesn't need to be patched. The law, the observance of the law does not need to be brought into the church and it shouldn't be. The book of Hebrews says it's old, it's obsolete, it's ready to disappear. Alright? And uh, there is uh, an amazing effort to try to bring in the old and, and patch it up. And patch it up. See? When, uh, when the uh, Roman church, for example, decided we're going to put a liturgical calendar into effect. We're going to have Advent seasons and we're going to have this whole thing. and We'll observe feasts and we'll observe seasons and months and days and so forth. What was that? That was trying to blend the old and the new because there was nothing in the new that had anything to do with seasons and Advent and calendars and any of that. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to observe the, the liturgical calendar. That was a patching of the new with remnants of the old and trying to bring that about. By the way, even within the church, we've got a new versus old context because there's the age of the apostles and there's the age of the local church. There's the foundational age here where the uh, apostles and prophets were writing the New Testament. The canon of Scripture was being completed. We had miracles and healings and tongues and apostles and prophets and the foundation of the church. But when that was done, it's done. The foundation is laid. Now the structure can be built. You don't keep building a foundation for 2,000 years. And when do you stop building the foundation? You've got to get around to building the structure sometime. Apostles and prophets were for the foundation of the church. But there's that desire. Let's bring in this patch up the new with the old and let's keep the charismatic gifts going, for example. Let's keep speaking in tongues. Let's keep doing all this other stuff. Having prophecies and all these other things. You know, place over here on Burnett Road, they got prophecy conferences or prophecy night. Every Friday night's a prophecy night. Okay? Patching old with new. Trying to cling to what is old. Not let it go when God is done with it. When God's done with it. See? And we see how that goes. Now, um, 
That's what this parable is about. And the Pharisees were unwilling to let go of what was old, to embrace what was new, to let go of of uh, the uh, age of law and embrace the age of the incarnation. Now, I think it really gets summarized here in verse 39. No one, and here's what they're unwilling to let go of, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. The old is good enough. And there's the Pharisees rejecting the age of the incarnation. Because they're happy with what they have. They're in charge. There's the early Jewish believers unwilling to embrace the new age of the church. Unwilling to embrace grace. Insisting that, no, you Gentiles, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to obey the law and you've got to observe the feast. And you've got to do all this other stuff. You've got to observe Passover. Why are there church age believers observing Passover today? Why are they observing Passover today? Are they told anywhere in the New Testament to observe Passover? Are they told anywhere in the New Testament to observe the Sabbath? Are they told anywhere in the New Testament to observe the Feast of Trumpets? No. In fact, they're told just the opposite. They're told that presently there is that partial hardening of Israel while God is dealing with the church. God will once again restore his dealings with Israel. But presently, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We are one body in Christ. Passover was for the Jews. There are no Jews. There are no Gentiles in Christ. Why do believers, why do born-again believers observe Passover today? They're, they're patching new with old. All right? That's what this parable's about. You can't do it. What you end up with is something that's wrong, at least as far as the old is concerned, and even morbid as far as the new is concerned. You get this patchwork and it doesn't work. You wreck them both. Both are ruined. Human nature clings to the old and resists the new. Oh, I better put that back up there. Human nature clings to the old and resists the new. Human nature clings to the old and resists the new. We're, just, we're creatures of habit. All right. In particular, if, you know, the old is good enough. The old is good enough, it says. Yeah, that's good enough for me. Good enough for me. You know, I wonder if some of that is even in the thinking of, that, of the uh, the crowd that clings that says, you know, the King James Bible is, is God's Bible. King James and anything else is a perversion. They say New American Standards from Satan. NIV is from Satan. If you read a New King James or if you read a, an NASB or an NIV, then you're reading a, the, the Bible of the Alexandrian cult and uh, you're serving the devil and you, you, can't, you can't be a true Christian and read anything but the King James Bible. I can find people within three square miles of this building that will tell you that. They'll come right in here and look you in the eye and tell you that if you're not reading the King James and you're serving Satan. Okay? Well, now wait a minute. And I wonder if some of that thinking is this, this mental attitude here. The old is good enough. You know? Now, I'm not going to debate with them. I'm not going to dispute that for 300 years, the uh, King James Bible did some amazing things around the world. It went to more continents, more countries, led more people to Christ. It was used in a powerful way in the English-speaking world for centuries. I won't deny that. But the world today no longer communicates in Elizabethan English. 
just doesn't. If you want to communicate in 21st century English language, why throw an extra barrier in there, an obstacle in there? Teach the Word of God in 21st century modern English. Anyway, the old is good enough. Nothing new. Say, you know, the colonel used an overhead. Don't you dare go to a digital projector. The old is good enough. Say, well, I mean, let's resist cassette tapes. Let's stick with reel to reel. Right? The old is good enough. And I still have my 8-track tapes. I know that's... Uh, and disco's coming back. I know that. I got my... Uh, no, I never had... I was too young for disco, you know. My babysitters were all into that back in the 1970s. But all right, I'm going to get in trouble with that. Let's uh, wrap this up. There is a great commentary uh, by William Barclay and uh, his Daily Study Bible series. He's got the entire. There's an Old Testament series and a New Testament series, and I appreciated what the New Testament series had to say on this. The happy company. They said to him, John's disciples fast frequently. They said to him, John's disciples fast frequently and pray. So the disciples of the Pharisees, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come and when the bridegroom is taken away from them in those days, widen this out here a little bit. In those days, uh, they will fast. What amazed and shocked the scribes and the Pharisees was the normality of the followers of Jesus. Colley No, and that's a name I'm not familiar with, tells how once a well-loved chaplain said to him, Young Knox, uh, don't make an agony of your religion. It was said of Burns that he was uh, haunted rather than helped by his religion. The Orthodox Jews had an idea, not yet altogether dead, that a man was not being religious unless he was being uncomfortable. <laughs> Right? You know, somehow it's not religion if it's fun. You know, like church on Sunday. It should be boring. And you should, you know, grit your teeth until finally, oh, it's done. Let's sing a hymn and get out of here. That's church in a lot of people's minds. Right? Husbands that would rather not be there, but they're going because the wives are dragging them. <sighs> okay, come on, football starting. Okay? That's church. The whole idea that maybe you can sit in Bible class and enjoy it, have fun, learn things, be encouraged, that that would be normal. They don't have an understanding of that. To them, that's abnormal. So the Orthodox Jews had an idea, not yet altogether dead, that a man was not being religious unless he was being uncomfortable. That, you know, you've got to be in a suit and tie. That way you can be uncomfortable. They had systematized their religious observances. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, and often they whitened their faces uh, so that no one could fail to see that they were fasting. <laughs> Look at me. I'm holy. I'm fasting. I'm not eating today. And Jesus says, don't do that. Wash your face and wet your head. Nobody ought to know what's going on when you're fasting. True, fasting was not so very serious because it lasted only from sunrise to sunset, and after that, ordinary food could be taken. The idea was to call God's attention to the faster. Sometimes they even thought of it in terms of sacrifice. By fasting, a man was in essence offering nothing less than his own flesh to God. Even prayer was systematized. Prayer was to be offered at 12 midday, 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. 
Okay? How is that any different than Muslims when they do their five prayers a day at the appointed hour when the loudspeaker goes off across town? Jesus was opposed radically to religion by rule. He used a vivid picture. When two young people married in Palestine, they did not go away for a honeymoon. They stayed at home and for a week kept open house. Okay? That's pretty different, isn't it? They dressed in their best. Sometimes they even wore crowns. For that week, they were king and queen, and their word was law. They would never have a week like that again in their hard-wrought lives. <laughs> you know? Enjoy it while it's there, because next week is somebody else's week. <laughs> All right? After that, the reality of marriage sets in. The favored guests who shared this festive week were called the children of the bride chamber. And it was a fun week. It's extremely significant that more than once Jesus likened the Christian life to a wedding feast. Joy is a primary Christian characteristic. It was said of a famous American teacher by one of her students, she made me feel as if I was bathed in sunshine. Far too many people think of Christianity as something which compels them to do all the things they do not want to do and hinders them from doing all the things that they want to do. You know, that's, that's the unbeliever's view of it. And sadly, that's the carnal believer's view of it. Fellow I used to work with, uh, you know, I'd give him the gospel, I'd talk to him, and he'd say, you know what, I, if, if, I, if I believed in your Bible and in your religion and your God and that, then I'd have to quit living with my girlfriend. <laughs> I said, uh, well, uh, <laughs> what are you really talking about here? You know, you're, you're talking about your internal soul going to hell. That's the issue in receiving Christ or rejecting Christ and your thing is, you know, if I got religion, I'd have to give up living with my girlfriend. Okay? In other words, I can't have any fun anymore. No, that's not what it's all about. So it hinders them from doing all that they want to do. Laughter has become a sin instead of, as a famous philosopher called it, a sudden glory. Robert Louis Stevenson was right when he wrote in The Celestial Surgeon, If I have faltered more or less, and I, I'm not big on poetry, but I like this, if I have faltered more or less in my great task of happiness, if I have moved among my race and shown no glorious morning face, if beams from happy human eyes have moved me not, if morning skies, books and my food and summer rain knocked on my sullen heart in vain, Lord, thy most pointed pleasure take and stab my spirit broad awake. Or Lord, if I too obdurate I, choose thou before that spirit die, a piercing pain, a killing sin, and to my dead heart run them in. Isn't that great? And I'm not a poetical kind of guy, but I like that. At the same time, Jesus knew there would come a day when the bridegroom would be taken away. He was not caught unawares by death. Ahead he saw the cross, but even on the way to the cross, he knew the joy that no man can take away because it's the joy of the presence of God. We should be rejoicing. We're called to rejoice. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, Rejoice. Then the parable. He spoke a parable to them. And we won't read through this. That's just the King James text. Now, there is in religious people a kind of passion for the old. Nothing moves more slowly than a church. <laughs> All right. Ever attend a deacon's meeting someday and you'll know what we're talking about. We'll bring up an idea. We'll talk about it. It'll come up again in the next three or four or five monthly deacon's meetings. Finally, on about the sixth or seventh meeting, we'll say, you know what? We're tired of talking about it. We should do something. So for two or three more meetings, we'll decide what to do. And then usually about a year after the first idea came up, 
something's done. And usually it was by somebody outside of the deacons that just got tired of waiting and went and did it. And so then when the deacons say, okay, this is taken care of, it's now old business, and we can remove it from the agenda. <laughs> Nothing moves more slowly than a church. The trouble with the Pharisees was that the whole religious outlook of Jesus was so startlingly new, they simply could not adjust to it. The mind soon loses the quality of elasticity and will not accept new ideas. And I hope that that phrase, just chew on that this week, would you? The mind soon loses the quality of elasticity. Uh, I think that's, that's a very true statement, not only in the spiritual realm, but just in, in, think about little kids and the sponges they are and how they can soak up new things and learn languages and learn things and just, they have that wonderful elasticity to just keep learning things. But then we become adults and we grow old and we just kind of, our mind kind of fixes itself and that's where we are. And you can't teach an old dog new tricks. There's a reason why that's an expression. Okay? The quality of elasticity. And theologically, we can fall into this. We can get a very rigid mind where we no longer even question anything anymore. And you know, we should question. We should search the scriptures diligently to see if these things are so. We should be willing to examine any scripture. What, what would we be afraid of? If the scripture says it, I believe it. Okay? So sure, look at it again. You've looked at that verse a thousand times. You know what that verse means. Well, look at it again. See if maybe it means something more to you now that you've grown up a little bit. Maybe you knew it back then, but look at it again. With some elasticity to say, you know what? I don't know everything. I need to learn. Okay? You cannot, Jesus used two illustrations. You cannot put a new patch on an old garment. A strong new cloth will only rip the rent uh, rip the rent in the old cloth wider. Bottles in Palestine were made of skin. When new wine was put into them, it fermented and gave off gas. If the bottle was new, there was a certain elasticity in the skin and it gave with the pressure. But if it was old, the skin was dry and hard and it would burst. Don't, says Jesus, let your mind become like an old wine skin. People say of wine, the old is better. Well, it may be at the moment, but they forget that it is a mistake to despise the new wine for the day will come when it has matured and it will be the best of all. Well, isn't that true? It will be the best. I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. I would not trade the bride of Christ to be the bride of Christ. You know, and even the upcoming millennial kingdom is going to have a glory all of its own, but I wouldn't trade the bride of Christ for that. The whole passage is Jesus' condemnation of the shut mind and a plea that men should not reject new ideas. And then it goes on and describes some things. Um, <laughs> Fosdick asks, how would medicine fare if doctors were restricted to drugs and methods and techniques 300 years old? Would you want to go to a doctor who was limited to the medicine, the knowledge, the techniques that were around 300 years ago? Or would you rather that you had a doctor that was uh, more current than that in his uh, pharmaceutical options, in his surgical procedures, in his um, other uh, uh, therapeutic uh, methodologies and so forth? Yet our standards of orthodoxy are far older than that. The man with something new has always had to fight. Galileo was branded a heretic when he held that the earth moved around the sun. Okay, condemned to death. Lister had to fight for antiseptic technique and surgical operations. Whew, I'm glad he won that idea. <laughs> Can you imagine? Simpson had a battle against opposition in the merciful use of chloroform. Let us have a care that when we resent new ideas, we are not simply demonstrating that our minds are grown old and unelastic. And let us never sink a shirk the adventure of thought. All right, you know, it's, 
it's a blessing, and I, I think we have a, uh, a tremendous heritage of teachers. We've got a tremendous heritage of pastors in the older generations, pastors that are departing or soon will depart from phase two on into glory. Um, and we want to follow in that heritage. We want to follow in that tradition. But I fully expect that we're going to go further. I fully expect we're going to be able to teach realms of doctrine. We're going to be able to teach Bible classes and go beyond anything they approach because we have what they did to build on. See, and I expect that my son or whoever in following generations becomes a pastor, I expect they're going to be able to take what we've done and go even further. See, and that's not, uh, that's not to, uh, to be disappointing or anything. It's, we'll do what we can do in our day, but further generations will go further, and I hope they do. Hope that they do. All right, that uh, that wraps up that. That took longer than I thought it would. Our uh, our next um, our next uh, episode is episode twelve, and it is the second Passover from John chapter five. So let's just turn there. We got a minute. Well, we got two minutes left. Two minutes and forty seconds left. In uh, this session, John chapter 5. Since I'm not a legalist, I don't have to take all two minutes and 40 seconds. I can close in prayer right now and let you go a minute and 30 seconds early. John chapter 5. He goes to Jerusalem for the second Passover and he heals the lame man. It's 47 verses long. I would encourage you to read through this a number of times between now and next week. Um, the miracle itself isn't long. It's only down through verse 9. He says, get up and walk. He gets up and walks. And then the, the uh, so we'll spend a week on the miracle, but then we got the aftermath because there's conflict, there's disapproval, there's these critics again that Jesus can't win. There's nothing he can do that they're going to approve of. They don't approve of who he's eaten with. They don't approve of who, what homes he goes to. They don't approve of his disciples that aren't fasting. They just don't approve of anything. And here he makes a man well. He heals a guy that for 38 years has been full of this sickness. And they can't approve of that either. Why? Because, well, he broke their Sabbath. How dare you? Okay. So that's where we'll be. And, uh, well, I expect uh, a number of weeks to tackle John chapter 5. 47 verses long and a lot of doctrine in that chapter. Father, we come before you, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful, Father, for the church age, thankful for the new privileges and blessings that we have in Christ, that we have an eternal priesthood. We have the reality of your very presence. And I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.